I had a little hard time getting moving this morning, but I'll just get yelling here in a minute and we'll kind of wake up, hopefully. I will at least. So this is week three of Gospel in Life. Aren't you so excited? Yeah. Woo! This jacket isn't going to work. Um, I am too. This was the hardest week for me. If you've done your home study already, you may feel similarly to me. I needed more space to write down my idols and why I worship them, and it was, uh, it was uncomfortable. I, um, I'm really familiar with Keller's writings on idolatry and um, in, in his talks, um, but my idol of the four in the home study, the biggest one for me is comfort, and he doesn't talk about that very much because I think his is affirmation. And so I was ready for that chapter not to destroy me, and then I got to the idol graph thing there, and I was like, oh. So, yeah, that was fun. Uh, a few years ago, when I was at Lynn Haven um, Methodist in Florida, where I pastored before this, we invited in a guest speaker um, from a ministry that we really liked to speak on um, what they were doing in the world. It was, it's, it was a ministry, it's a ministry called International Justice Mission. They were doing some really cool work um, all throughout the world. And so we invited one of their people to come in and speak. And the title of his message, which is the title um, that they always did in those days, was... Um, God's unfamiliar passion. God's unfamiliar passion. And what he did is he traced through um, the whole Old Testament how from the very beginning, right up, in, right up through Jesus and, and on to everything that we have from the Lord, um, there is this huge passion for um, what the Hebrews called mishpat, which is sort of like things the way they're supposed to be. People treated like they should be treated. That there's sort of like this social rightness. There's justice. And um, specifically in relationship to people who are weak and can be easily taken advantage of. And um, <clears throat> it was interesting because one of the things that he said was, that it was God's lesser known passion. And I thought, you know, that's interesting that you would say that because he said in the Old Testament, particularly, there are two great negative passions of God. There are po corresponding positive passions. There are two great things God is always on about negatively, and that's idolatry and injustice. And I remember thinking, you're totally right that God is always on about injustice in, in the Old Testament. That's true, and it's overlooked. But I wonder if it's really lesser known than idolatry. I wonder if you're actually taking for granted that we know and recognize and feel and understand deeply what idolatry is, how deeply God loathes it, why, and all of that. I, I'm not sure that's true. Um, and I, I say that in question, but I'm actually darn convinced that that's true. I don't think injustice is the lesser known passion of God. I think um, God's Frustration with and loathing of and desire to save us out of both injustice and what is or, um, idolatry and what idolatry creates, which is bad humanity or injustice. I think they're both pretty unknown to us. Um, but yet, if you look at the Bible, if you just look at the Ten Commandments, the first four specifically about idolatry. The next four, specifically about injustice. And they are specifically connected to one another, right? If you look through the first 14 narrative books of the Old Testament where stuff, stuff's happening, right? It's a, what's it a story of? It's a story about a typical people, right? The Jews are not exceptional. They're exceptional because God chose them. They're not exceptional because they're better, right? So we see ourselves in the Jewish nation, right? They're typical human beings. And it is a story of, in, of idolatry, which then leads to 
injustice. It's the whole story, the whole thing. And then God keeps going. And then you have the prophets. What, is, what was God doing in all this? What was God saying in all this? Why, why did, does God— Yes, because we have the prophets. So you get the prophets, what are the prophets saying? They, what are they, they are always saying the same thing. Would you quit worshiping idols and then doing the things you'd naturally do when you worship idols, i.e. perpetrate injustices and oppression on other people? In fact, one of the reasons why I'm not preaching on the Old Testament passages where God talks about this is because they're so graphically— Okay, I'm, I'm going to use the word pornographic in its technical sense. That is, it's vividly image-based, and it's about um, perverse sexuality. So I'm not saying God is a pornographer. What I'm saying is, is that the language is so vividly, graphically sexual because he links idolatry with adultery and prostitution that I can't talk about it because there's there, there are kids in the room. I, you would be really mad if I just read the Bible passages. If you don't think that's true, you haven't read the whole Bible. Or you weren't paying attention. You were sipping your coffee when you were reading that verse or something. Because it's so dramatically explosive, the language God uses about how disgusting and horrifying and pervasive and destructive idolatry is, that I would have had to told you last week to make other arrangements for everybody under 25 or something, you know? <laughs> to just even come to church. But it's in the Bible because that's how God feels about idolatry. <clears throat> um, now here's the problem that we have when we talk about this as Christians, because we normally think about idolatry as being out there, not in here. Um, almost everybody here could probably pass the doctrinal question, um, the, the doctrinal test on this. If I said, okay, here's your theology test. Does God like idolatry? It's, yeah, it's a yes or no, or, or, you, or we could do true or false. True or false? God dislikes idolatry. True? Yeah, a number of you. False? Anyone? Okay, so generally, okay, there you go. We, we could pass that, right? But what if I said, okay, now the next part of the test is an essay test. Respond articulately to What is idolatry? Why is it so bad? Why does God hate it so? And should he? How can we actually find it in our lives? What are we supposed to do about it? How do you get over it? And what does Jesus and the gospel have to do with it? Now, I have a feeling that if we were to respond an essay to those questions, a lot of us would end up drawing little tigers or something because we would have no idea how to, how to really biblically, theologically, truthfully answer those questions. Um, now, before I even get into that, um, there are two kinds of people in the room that don't even think I should be talking about this. There are some very pious Christians in the room that think that I really shouldn't be talking about idolatry. I really should just talk about worship. Because worship is the positive to idolatry, and you, th and you think, Nick, just why dwell on the negative? Just tell them God is amazing. And if they just, if people just recognize how amazing God is, then they will stop worshiping their idols and they will worship God instead, right? And they're, then there's the other side of the people who are really skeptical. And they're like, Nick, you know, the reason why we don't really bet on God on a really deep level, we have these other things we're trusting in to save us, is because we have doubts. 
I, I don't know if God is really there. I don't know if Jesus really wants me to have the good life that I know I want. And so I doubt that. And so I'm in these other things. So if you would actually preach apologetically, like a philosoph philosophical thing to handle, deal with my doubts, that would really help me a lot more than if you just talk about how, how I'm an idolater because I need, I need help. I don't need you to tell me that I'm a bad person. What I need is for you to help me deal with my doubts. And what I want to say to both of those objections is um, there's something really right about that and that's also totally wrong, okay? There's something right about that in that if you see God as God really is, that's going to affect your idolatry. That's totally true. Um, and we will, I will preach about that another time. Um, and it is true that doubts, skepticism produces doubts, and doubts make us less willing to bet because we're not really sure on outcomes. That's true. But, but here's what you also need to recognize. Those in the worship camp, I'd say this. Idols keep people from seeing the glory of God. It poisons the intellectual well. It keeps them from being able to see God's glory because they're so invested in not just their idols, but the way they have to think in order to be connected to and submit to their idols. So they can't see God's glory. They just don't. It, it, the mental processes have poisoned the well such that it's impossible to see. So unless you go to the idol and you say, look at that. Now look at Jesus. It's really hard to see. And... One of the things that's great about Jesus is that when you look at Jesus in relief against your idolatry, he looks so much better. Mountains look better with valleys. The second thing is, in terms of doubts, is um, your idols are not just the result of your doubts. They also generate your doubts. It's both. Our idolatry and our sin generates doubt. Our idols want to live. They want more space to work. They need to, they need to diminish our trust in the things that squeeze and kill them. And so it is a self-interested motivation of all our doubts, which is part of us, to say, I need more space. I need more space. Therefore, I have to destroy the thing that causes this person to be committed to this. And so the doubts, doubts self-generate, the, the idols self-generate the doubts to create more room for themselves. Now, I'm not saying there aren't really good intellectual questions that create actual doubts which will affect us to be committed to things other than God for our hopes. I'm not saying that. That is true. And I will preach philosophical apologetic sermons. You will hear them. Um, but don't mistake the—it's a feedback loop. It's not a one-way directional thing. Um, our idols—it's our idols that create our doubts, not just our doubts that create our idols. Is the pithy way I've written it in my sermon. Which creates this practical truth about idolatry. You will never be free of the hold of doubts to really enjoy and seek your full good hope, happiness, and fulfillment in God until you see your idols and with the gospel's help, you challenge those idols to a fight to the death. You have to see them and you have to challenge them to a fight to the death, and you have to ask Jesus for help, and you have to use the truth of the gospel to help you. And I don't think that we can, um, I don't think that we can make the challenge or win the fight unless we have these four things straight, and that's what I'm going to try to cover in the next few minutes. One is, we have to know what idolatry is. 
If we don't really know what it is, we can't do anything. The second thing is, we have to see why it's important. Not just true, but important. And then we have to go through the process of search and destroy. We have to know how to find it in us, and we have to know how to fight it. You with me? Okay. So for the three of you that are, let's go to the first point. The first is um, the question, what is idolatry? Okay, what is idolatry? Um, In the Bible, there are the Ten Commandments. The first several actually are about idolatry, but the first two are the most well-known. And the first one goes, this is how this this passage called, we call the Decalogue, the Ten, starts in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. So this is, he's saying it to his people. These people have already agreed to be his people. And so he says, okay, here's how it's going to work. And he starts out with these. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You don't, you don't have them, period. Right? And then he says this, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You've got to, you've got to deal with that phrase. Okay, you you have to deal with that phrase. I am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love and showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then the next command is that you can't make any image of God, right? That's the second commandment. Which is really nice because he basically says you can't be an irreligious idolater, that is, serving other gods, and you can't be a religious idolater making God in the image you want him to be in. Both are idolatry, you see? He didn't want people to to become idolaters worshiping him, and he didn't want people to become idolaters worshiping something else. He covers the prodigal son, and he covers the self-righteous son. He covers the irreligious people and the religious people. He covers the atheists and he, can, he, he covers the pietists. He covers everybody in two commandments. You can't have idols, either of them or of me. <clears throat> but think, think about how this is talked about in the New Testament. It's not just, we're not just talking about statues. Apostles that write this way, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Right? So he's talking about our inner psychological needs that kind of take over and then create kind of sinful actions. He's basically saying um, all, these, all that's idolatry. All that is worshiping something other than God. All of it is making God into some image that you can handle or worshiping some other thing that you feel like you need. It's all, it's all idolatry. And so you can get a definition something like this. Idolatry is, to, is looking to someone or something other than God for salvation or as a savior. That's it. It's looking at something other than God for salvation or for Savior. Um, it's the thing in which you really find your strength, affirmation, comfort, and hope. It's the thing f- about which you could really say this. If blank is going well, then I'm doing well. If blank is going well, then I'm doing well. If my children are doing well, then life is going well. If my career is going well, then I'm doing well. If I have enough money, if I'm healthy enough, if I'm whatever it is that can go into that blank, if this is going well, then I'm doing well. 
And if that isn't, if Jesus is still risen and on the throne, then I am doing well. If it's something other than, if, if Jesus is alive, then I'm doing great. Then it's an idol. And it's really not a lot more complicated than that. Last week, I talked about the fact that everybody has a concept of salvation, okay? Um, don't let the religious language fool you. Everybody has a good life they want. Everybody's after some picture of life. Either they, can, either they can describe it to you or they emotionally feel it because they know when their life isn't going in the right direction and they feel anxiety, they feel frustration, they feel desperate, they feel something. Everybody has a concept of salvation. And it's really important to know, um, to know that and to know its nature because you can't just go, oh, well, I just won't have one. Um, the, the desire in you for your heart to have some object, some idea of a salvation that you want is universal. That means everybody has one. It's unconquerable, meaning you can't remove it. Okay? You can't remove it. You can't say, well, I just won't want the thing. Um, and, it's, and it's always contingent. Like if you ask somebody, what, what, what do you think will make you happy? Um, they don't just say, oh, my being it's always something outside of, outside of them, not completely within their control. It's always something in some sense to be attained or to be gotten. And once that's true, that means you, not only do you have an idea of salvation, once that's true, which is true, you need a savior. You need something that by accessing that thing will get you the salvation that you're after. Okay, Here's why the whole—have you heard people say, um, well, you need a Savior and weak people need a Savior? You've heard, have you heard that saying? S total psychological misunderstanding about the, how the human mind even works. It's just a saying that people like to say. The fact is, is that you are a contingent being. Your desire to be happy is universal and unconquerable. Your heart will have some object and it will not be your heart. Right? Therefore— you need some externally contingent thing to get you access to the happiness you want. Therefore, you have a savior. That's it. Your savior can be your job. Your savior can be education. Your savior could be you have the right political views. Your savior could be a lot of different things. The thing that if it's going well, you're doing well. But you have one, make no mistake, because you have a concept of salvation. If you have a concept of salvation and you are a contingent being, you have a savior. The question is, what is your savior? or your amalgamation or committee of saviors. Because for a lot of Christians, Jesus is the happiness subcontractor for post-death. <laughs> and that's about it. Right? Where are we? Okay, so here's, if you're, if you're a churchgoer, if you're a Christian, um, here's the vocabulary I, I think you probably ought to write down, but I, I want you to learn. And that is, the, here's the question. What is the, okay, Jesus is your Savior. Is Jesus your Savior? That's great. Love that. Okay, here's my question. What's your functional Savior? What's the thing that functions as your Savior? What is the thing that you've got to have other than Jesus? to feel like your life is going okay. You've got enough friends. You have financial or health insurance security. 
what if, what is the thing that if we stripped it away from you, you, you couldn't be happy? Or just, or just the idea of not having it makes you really anxious. Like if somebody told me, we're just not going to do the health insurance thing anymore. Just, you know, we'll just see what happens. Most of us would be like, what? I mean, I mean look, if a 25-year-old came to you and said, I'm going as a missionary to Libya. I've only been able to raise about 12,000 bucks a year. I, I can't afford health insurance. We're just going to, we're just going to go for it. You, would you, what would you tell that person? You're being, say it with me, irresponsible. Now, is that person being irresponsible? Maybe, maybe. But our fanatical devotion to the idea that that person is being irresponsible demonstrates our idolatry of healthcare because it can save us. Right? At bottom, God in Christ has to be our, con- our conception of salvation. Jesus tells us what the good life we ought to want is. And so if we won't accept that, we're already an idolater because our idea of salvation won't connect with God's idea of salvation. We're, not e- we're an idolater before we even get to what's our Savior. And friends, that's where most of us have a problem, right? Because my concept of the good life is not a one-for-one correlative to God's concept of the right life, is it? It's not. No. No, no, no. No, there are values that overlap, but aren't identical, right? You like some things that God likes for you, but do we like all the things that God wants for us? Probably not. And that demonstrates that we're not even to the idol's point yet before we're all already idolaters, right? And then secondly, beyond that, then God himself in Christ Jesus is supposed to be the attainment of that salvation. We're seeking him to give it to us. We're seeking his ways to walk it out. We're trusting him more than our ability to negotiate it. Anything else is idolatry whether you have little figurines or not. Probably don't have 20 minutes for every point. So why is the concept of idolatry so important? There's this, um, anyway, the, the, the concept of idolatry in the Bible is super, 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 super important, okay? I could, I could linger on that like a family guy sketch until you are uncomfortable with the number of times that I say super. I'm telling you, it is super important. It is not just a truth, it is a incredibly important truth. There's this, um, there's this show that looks like, if you have Netflix and you haven't seen the BBC masterpiece version of Sherlock, you, pr- you probably need to. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Um, anyway, in one, there's only three episodes. They're like movies. Anyway, so in one of the episodes, um, Sherlock is mad at Watson because he's written about their last case in which he realized that um, Sherlock actually didn't know that the planets revolve around the sun. Which is hilarious because Sherlock knows everything about everything. And he goes, he goes, listen, I don't need to know that. And Watson's like, why don't you, he's, and Sherlock's, because it's not important. And, and, and Watson's like, what do you mean it's not important? He's like, that has no relevance to any case I'm ever going to solve. This is my hard drive. I only put in here what helps me solve cases. Whether or not the sun, the, the plants revolve around the sun doesn't matter. It's not going to, the kind of tobacco 
burnt bits and how I can distinguish them and where they're from. All that matters because that is how I handle evidence and how I can find, but it doesn't matter. And you see, when we're a mental idolater, that's what happens to us. All these important things that don't, that don't fit our happiness model and our, who we're, what we're worshiping to get what we want, we just say all this other stuff isn't important. The fact is, a lot of it's important. A lot of it's important. In fact, the funny thing is that case ended up coming down to astronomy. That was the ironic bit in that episode. It doesn't matter if you think this is important. If you don't, look, you're Sherlock Holmes. This is one of the most important things to God. And he's sort of in charge. So let me just try to convince you why this is so important. Okay, one, you cannot grow as a Christian without an understanding of idolatry. Just understanding what are sins and what aren't sins will never get you anywhere spiritually. It'll never get you anywhere spiritually. Um, the, the, here, and here's why. If doing a sin is bad, then what's the solution to that? The adjustment of your behavior, right? This thing is a sin, therefore I shouldn't do it. I should adjust my behavior. Well, what's going to happen? You're just going to do it another way. You're, there's no heart change. If you adjust your behavior, your heart's not going to change at all. And, and therefore, what you'll do is you'll say, well, I can't do this, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do this instead. And what happens is you still do that sin because that sin comes from your idol, right? So I'm just going to find a more sophisticated way to do that sin that's not as obvious. So if my sin is, I am going to control what my family does, therefore I have to get my wife to do what I want. And I start out with screaming at her, right? And, and then what happens? She grows immune to that, or I realize I shouldn't do it, so what do I do? I just find another way to manipulate her that's not as obviously sinful, right? So I'll I'll be a little conniving. I'll find really sort of passive-aggressive ways to punish her. I'll, right? I'll find more and more sophisticated ways to keep my idol, but not overtly sin. But my sinful heart will stay exactly the same, and my sin will grow in sophistication. I'll become more self-righteous and become more wicked, not less. And my church will be full of people like me, and lots of people want to come and know Jesus, Right? And God will be glorified in us because we'll be satisfied in him. I don't think so. I don't think so. If you can't get the idea of how important idolatry is in terms of the effect on your heart, and you just think the Christianity is about not doing sins, you can never spiritually grow. And friends, we—that's all we're doing here. Secondly is, the idol is the real issue, not the sin. The thing that really offends God— it, it, it is, your, is your sin, but it's, it's because of the idol. The, the, it, is, it is the idol and the idolatry that infuriates God much more than the sin. If you loved God with all your heart and you made a mistake, do you think that that would infuriate the heart of God the way our idolatry does? He wouldn't say, he, wouldn't, he would not have to use pornographic prostitution language to bring home the infuriating nature of our idolatry if we just made a couple mistakes, but he was really the heart of all our passions. It, the idolatry is the condemning thing. It is the issue. It is the rejection of the relationship. It is making ourselves God instead of God. And then, it, then we just act like it, and that's called sin. 
Second, the idol is the real enemy, not the sin. It is, it is not the, it is, it is the idol that will kill you a hundred different ways. You can figure out how to make the sin not kill you as fast and as bad. You can do that. You can figure out, you can, you can figure out how to be promiscuous and not pay the price as bad or as fast. Can't you? Of course you can. You can figure out how to be greedy, but not show it as much to make people distrust you or not be, want to be generous towards you. You can act generous, but not be generous and be greedy and mitigate the social problems that'll create. Any sin, you can, become, you can become more sophisticated and you can push back the difficulty it's going to bring to your life, but that's not what's killing you. That's not the real enemy. That's not the real problem. The real problem is the sin. The, the, the real problem is that I'm greedy. <laughs> that's the real problem, that I'm not actually generous. And then I'm walking around acting like I'm the generous one, therefore I can keep whatever I want, not God who can call me to give everything that I have to anyone he wants, even very undeserving people who haven't worked nearly as hard as me. We have to keep going. The idol is the real target, not the sin. If you want to grow, you cannot aim your spiritual fighting guns at the sin. You're just going to lose. You might even kill that sin for a little while, but then all that's going to happen is the idol will switch you onto a new sin until it can switch you back because you're not looking. That's all. That's all. You'll get over screaming at your spouse to be conniving until you've forgotten about how bad it is to scream at your spouse, and then you'll find yourself screaming at your spouse because this conniving wasn't working. And you'll just revert. You'll just constantly revert because you can only shoot the sin as long as you keep your eyes on it, and you can only put the crosshairs of your scope on so many things at one time. The crosshair goes on the idol, not the sin. You kill the idol, you'll stop sinning. Fifthly, or whatever, is it'll save the good things that you'll otherwise destroy. Um, I would encourage, if you haven't read it yet, there's an essay by C.S. Lewis called First and Second Things. First and Second Things by C.S. Lewis. You probably need to read that if you haven't. It's incredibly helpful. But essentially what he argues is um, there are primary things and there are secondary things. And if you make a secondary thing or a contingent thing a primary thing, you always destroy it. If you make something bigger than it was ever meant to be, it'll, it'll crush under the weight because you'll destroy its integrity. For example, um, if I'm an unhappy person and I'm trying to live the life I really wanted to have through my children, right? That's unhelpful, but what's it going to destroy? My children, right? My children. Um, so so when, when my children become not just children, but they become idols, what happens? They pay, right? I, I destroy the thing, and guess what also happens? I don't get what I want. Why? Because my children were never meant to be a god, and they cannot produce what I want from them, right? So I don't get what I want. They get destroyed, and so I lose. I'm disappointed by my idol, but also I've destroyed the good thing. And here's the thing. Many of our idols are good things God wants you to have. But we're, we're either misusing them, or we're making them ultimate things, and then therefore we'll destroy that thing. A great example for us Americans, I just won't talk about sex this time. Let's just talk about food this time. How about that? Let's just talk about food. It's just the same thing, right? Um, uh, is food a good thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but here's, here's the problem with it, right? Uh, if I'm doing something with it, it's not for 
Is it going to satisfy me? Of course not. Of co- I can, that's why I can eat a half gallon of mint chip ice cream and not feel happier. <laughs> right? Same thing with, I, I, I know if you, you might even object to this hobby, but I really like to hunt, right? And um, I remember some years ago, I was really stressed out at work, and so hunting can relax you because you're out in the woods and the air, and I never see anything, and so I'm just really taking a nap in the fresh air. And so um, I went out to do that, and so I'm sitting in my deer stand, and you know, the stars are out. It's, it's still before light. I can see 100,000 stars. It's, it's cool, but not cold. It was beautiful, and I was stressed out beyond belief. Why? Because hunting is not my peace. It was never meant to bring peace. It, it is peaceful if I go there already at peace. And if the rat race is kind of edging me a little bit, I can go away from the rat race and get a little peace and quiet, and that can help. But only if I am already at peace. You see, there's, there are hundreds of things. Our hobbies, our loves, our relationships, our pursuits, all, everything in your life, everything in your life is something you will destroy if it becomes an idol, if it, a second thing becomes a primary thing. If it's not something Jesus gives you as a role that you can do and embrace and live out, but instead is the thing that defines you, and if it's going well, you're doing well. You, you'll destroy everything. We'll destroy everything in our lives. And we are. Because idolatry makes every good pleasure dysfunctional. So, I hope that you believe it's important. Third is, how do you find it? We're going to do this a little bit rapidly. So, these slides are on the website. Here are a few points on this. How do you find it? Because it's an internal thing that hides for its own life, right? You don't—we don't want to become holy, okay? We don't want to become holy on a really deep level. And therefore, we hide and we protect and we cover up and we paint over our idols so that they can live. And so finding them is hard to do. So one is, you have to start out with the assumption that idolatry is present. If you don't start with the assumption that you're an idolater, you're not going to find it. You're going to look, you're not going to see anything right away, and you're going to go, oh, look, it's not there, just like I thought. Right? You got to believe it's there. It's always there and it's always creeping back every place you've ever handled it. The second thing is you have to ask yourself revealing questions and you have to really do it honestly. So you might, if you just say, I wonder if I'm an idolater, that may not be as helpful as you'd hoped. But if you, if you ask questions like, um, who or what am I trusting to get what I want out of life? Or, I just behaved badly. Why did I really just do that? Or, what would my spouse or close friends or employees or kids say is the answer to the question, what do I really want to get out of life? And if you don't find any idolatry when you ask that question, then go ask them. And if they, if they don't tell you, then you don't have a candor-based relationship with them. Which means approval is your, is your idol, and you already know. There it is. You win. <laughs> or having your approval is their idol, or both. Um, or you could say, what does my leisure, spending record, time use, or thinking time tell me that is most important to me? What's on your mind? What's on your mind right now? That could be a helpful question. Uh, 
Oh, sorry. Wait. The next one is, look in the most obvious human places. Your book will help you with that. Some of those obvious and repetitive human places are power, approval, comfort, and control. And Keller talks about those in those chapters. If you haven't read it, you really need to. And here, here's the reason why. These are the areas where if I asked you if these are a problem in humanity, you would say, oh yeah, lots of people struggle with that. And if I asked you if they were present in you, 5% of you would say yes. Or you'd say, well, maybe sometimes. You wouldn't say, it's eating my life alive and is the heart of every sin I commit. But here's, here's, here's the likely truth. The likely truth is that probably is true. Probably is true. It's true. It's true of me. Um, next is look at your sins because beneath every sin is at least one idol and usually more. So why did I just do that? Okay, because I was proud. Well, why was I proud? Why did I think I had the right to do that? Well, because she was treating me this way and I shouldn't be treated that way. Well, why does that give you the right to treat her in a way that God wouldn't want you to treat her? Because I think I'm God? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Go apologize right now. And don't just tell her you're sorry for how you talked to her. Tell her you were competing for God's glory when you were doing it. Another one is look at your anxieties. What makes you anxious? Or another way, another thing to say about this, and, and I don't want to be too flippant with this one, but look at what you haven't gotten over. Now, for some of us, we may need some clinical help with that, um, but um, uh, unforgiveness may have to do with how somebody wronged you really early in life or whatever, and, and, you, may, and you may feel really hurt by that, and you may actually need some, somebody, to, a clinician, to help you sort of handle how that's affected your thinking structures and so on. But let me just tell you, unforgiveness always has an idol under it. Always. You don't deserve to never forgive somebody no matter what they did to you. And I say that as reverently as I can. And therefore, and therefore, um, the things that you haven't gotten over have clinical issues you might need to deal with, but they definitely have also somewhere beneath them an idol that you are worshiping that isn't God. And it's one of the reasons why pastors like me, and I think wise Christians will always tell you to get, will very often tell you to get your counseling from a Christian counselor who knows that. Somebody who knows the clinical issues but also understands at some point they're going to have to ask you to repent of an idol. And they're going to do it really lovingly, but they're going to do it because they have to to help you. Also, look at your inordinate desires. What is in your life that you can't control? You can't believe how strong it is. And you know that's wacky. Um, I, I don't want to get too graphic here, but um, we are a society that through imagery and culture feed certain desires and feed them and feed them and feed them so that they will become monsters and so that we will act in relationship to them. The, uh, the biggest ones of these are sex, food, um, approval or status, Right? And self-comforting, which w relates to food, obviously. Um, 
Our culture feeds them and feeds them and feeds them, and then they grow out of control. And then we go, I wonder why, I wonder why I can't control my eating, or I wonder why I can't control how I'm obsessed with sexuality, or I wonder why I can't control, I just, I just go into stores and just, uh, before I know it, I've spent 500 bucks. Or, or I just, I just can't stop doing my hobbies. I know, I know I need to include my kids or spend more time with my kids or I, I know it's driving my wife crazy. I, I, you know, I know I, but I, I just need that time. Why do you need that time? Because I need leisure. Why do you need leisure? Because I have to get away. Why do you have to get away? Because life stresses me out. Why does life stress you out? Are you doing something you don't need to be doing? No, I'm doing I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, a, I'm, I'm in my family. I'm working my job. Well, then why do you have to get away? Because it, it, it just stresses me out. Well, why does it stress you out? Are you working too long? I mean, are, are you sick? No I'm, not, no, I'm not sick. Well, then what is it? Well, I'm just, I'm just not, I don't feel good. I'm not happy. Well, why? Because I can't just be like everybody else. I can't just accept my role. My role doesn't make me feel good. Why doesn't your role make me fe- you feel good? Do you believe it's what God wants you to do? Well, yeah. Well, why aren't you happy being a dad or a mom or a worker? Because I want to be a king. <laughs> That's why. I want to catch marlin 70 miles off the coast. I want to duck hunt whenever I want to. I want to eat ice cream at every meal. I want people to bring me slippers in a bathrobe in the morning. That's what I want. And I don't like being one of these pedestrian people who just do stuff. I need, well, maybe you need to get away and think about how you need to learn how to love your life and embrace your roles because Jesus is Lord, not you. And I like to do that in a duck blind. Quickly. How does the gospel help? And this is actually a short point. Um, and that is, you have, and he, he, here's why this is important. Because becoming a Christian and becoming a Christian require the exact same thing. Okay? Receiving God's righteousness through faith where he saves you, gives you his righteousness, takes away your sin through the cross, is how you become a Christian for the first time, Right? There is a, what we call in theology, a forensic action. There is a real, actual transition of regeneration that happens in that moment where you become innocent before God, clothed in the greatness of Christ, and you become his. And that happens when you believe in Jesus, right? Now, here's, now the question is, how do you then become the thing you were just declared? How do you act out what God just decided you are? through faith and faithful. How does that happen? Do you, do you then, you read the Bible, you read the commandments, and you just start doing them? No. No. You just do this again. You just say, okay, wait a second. What does it mean that Jesus is my Savior and King and Master and Lord, and He is the Great One, and everything He does is beautiful, and He is, He is the truth, He is the way, He is the life, He is the beauty, He is the honor. And then what, then what would I do? And so when the idol comes up, you say this. You say, God, the church is a bad God. Those people are never going to love me like you love me. They can't. And they don't even know how bad I am. And you do. And I, that's not my worth, right? 
And you, so you need this for your life, right? And I'm, 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 my, my affirmation isn't in what they say. My affirmation is in Christ. Christ affirmed my existence in the cross and in his love for me and his election and drawing me to himself and, and giving me the spirit. That's my affirmation. And my comfort is in the fact that whatever they do to this body, they can't do to the soul, that you are the one who gives me every good thing that I enjoy. And I, and I embrace those comforts. And when they're torn away from me, I let them go. And I look to what you will provide next. And I can't control this world, but you control all things as they're needed. And I trust in your providence. See, it's all the same thing, you see? You never get beyond getting saved. You never get beyond having faith. You never get beyond, get beyond believing in Jesus. You never ever do anything but in the Christian life, believing Jesus and then just doing something. And so faith is how you become good. And when you understand that, you will never believe again the idea that all religions are basically the same. You'll never believe that again. Because you'll, you'll know that God gives favor that we receive by grace. We trust in him and then we just act like it. Right? And so this is what it comes down to. That you have to believe that Jesus is the real savior and the real salvation. That what he has for you is the real salvation. And you need and I need to adjust our idea of the good life into accord with his first. Then secondly, we need to believe that he is the one who will lead us to that and give it to us. And then when we start to emotionally flip out, we need to say, why am I flipping out? Where is the idol? And then what you need to do is you need to apply Jesus and the gospel specifically to that idol. To, to that one. That's the Christian life. When you say, <clears throat> I'm committing the sin or I'm feeling sin, I'm, I want to go out of Jesus' plan for this. And I know what that reveals is this. This is the idol. Now here's the question. Is Jesus better than that? Or isn't he? And if he isn't, why am I playing around with a religion thing in the first place? And if he is, how? How? And then you pray that and speak that to yourself and remember it and apply it and apply it and apply it. And, and there's two things that'll do. One is it'll, it'll, there will be real change over time. There really will be real change over time. The other thing is, is you will be astounded at how much you learn about God and how many places there are to trust him and how many things you can learn about God and his relationship to you and your relationship to any, everything else when you search and destroy the idolatry that's everywhere in us. One of the ways we do this at our house is we play the game sometimes. Jesus is better than. We just go around the table. Jesus is better than ice cream. Jesus is better than a PhD. Jesus is better than my career working out. Jesus is better than me being able to afford the kinds of things that will get me the status I really want. Jesus is better than being able to upgrade my 1999 Saturn SL2. 
we've got to know what idolatry is. Ask yourself, if this is going well, I'm doing well, what is that? You've got to know that it's important. John Owen said, either you are killing sin or sin is killing you. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Put those together and it is either you're killing idolatry or idolatry is killing you. It's important. You have to go through the search and destroy. You have to find it. You have to assume it's there. You have to look in the most obvious places of power, approval, control, and comfort. You have to look for the, the sin, the idol that's under the sin. You have to look for the idol under the anxiety. You have to look at what you haven't gotten over. You have to look at your out-of-control desires. And then you've got to kill it. You've got to destroy You've got to trust Jesus is the Savior and you've got to apply Jesus continually to the particular idols that you struggle most deeply with. And you have to do it together with other people who will give you candor and love. Because God said this about idolatry. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water and have instead dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Or as Colossians says it this, this way in verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's right. Father, um, would you help us to get the most we can out of the study? Would you help us understand idolatry? Would you help us fight it, search it, and destroy it? Would you help us find it? Holy Spirit, come. Father, pour your Holy Spirit out on us and reveal to us our idolatry and reveal to us how you are greater than it so that our our search and destroy um, desire to come in and see the idolatry and kill it would actually result in us seeing you more as you are and loving you and worshiping you and enjoying you. And would you help us to see how it will destroy many of our doubts and so we can focus on the ones we really need to think about. And would you help us in the small groups this week, in studies this week, help us to get the most out of it we can. Pray in Christ's name.